welcome and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most senseless, the most high-profile homicides in the state of Maryland, they are examined, they are discussed, and they are profiled. For this season, season five, the focus is on sick, sadistic, twisted, pedophile, rape, or any type of sex-related homicide that occurred in the state of Maryland. All these type of homicides, they are the focus. And as I stated in the last episode, the state of Maryland, we've, we've had so many of these type of homicides or these type of murders in Maryland that this is just part one. Part two will be featured later in this podcast. So with that being said, let's just jump right on into it. And on this episode, the murder of 15-year-old Tara Allison Gladden will be profiled. And as in each episode, an unsolved homicide that needs attention will also be profiled. And this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 52-year-old Gwen Footman. Whew, pedophiles, grown-ass men or women who are sexually attracted to kids. And when I say kids, I mean, if you are an adult and that's 18, if you like kids younger than you, significantly, significantly younger than you, and under the age of 18, technically you a pedophile. In the state of Maryland, the legal age of consent, I believe, is 16 years old. So if you are a 16-year-old female, way younger, and you are currently in a sexual relationship with someone who is more than four years older than you, in the state of Maryland, technically, that person that you are having sex with is a pedophile. And they're breaking up Maryland's law. I mean, I don't care how willing the 16 or the 15, I should say, because 16 is the age of consent, but I don't care how willing the 15 or younger is or was. I don't care if it was a 15 year old boy with a 21 year old woman. I don't care if the woman walked around but ass naked in front of this dude. Technically, it's still against the law and you are still considered a pedophile, a sexual offender. I mean, I don't care if the girl was 14 and she looked 18. I don't care if the girl came on to you first. I don't care whatever way y'all want to try to twist it. I don't care if it was consensual or if the minor was 100% willing. I don't care. The adult knows that their actions is illegal. And they know that the other person is a minor. And 16 years old or 15, I should say, or younger is too young to be screwing around with an adult who's more than five years older than them. Simple as that. And if you are an adult, let's say you're 18 and you're having sex with a 14 year old, then you are a pedophile. Simple as that. Don't try to twist it around. And I said what I said and I'm not, I'm not going to argue with you. And since we are talking about pedophiles, that leads me into the pedophile that I'm going to discuss in this episode. 
Curtis Aiden Jameson was from the 3300 block of Oakfield Avenue in Northwest Baltimore, and he had a fetish or an obsession with preteen girls. And when they reached the right age of 16, he was done with them. He was through with them. He didn't want them no more. So telling these teenage girls that he was some big time drug dealer. At 28 years old, Curtis had already had a wicked history of having sex with girls who were more than 10 years younger than he was. And he was already waiting trial for having sex with two girls, one who was a 12 year old and another who was a 13 year old. While he was waiting to go to trial for having sex with these two girls, he met another young girl and set his eyes on her. 12-year-old Tara Allison Gladden, who was originally from Cockeysville, she moved to the Columbia area with her family when she was about two years old. Tara was quiet. She was a shy girl who loved to dance and she loved to have fun like a normal teenager. She loved to laugh. She loved to swim, she liked animals, and she excelled at playing soccer. Tara was a like a normal teenage girl, but when she was about 12 years old, 28-year-old Curtis set his sights on her, and she became like the new girl he started having sex with, even though he was already waiting to see what would happen with his first case. You see what I'm saying? Pedophiles. I keep trying to tell y'all, Pedophiles ain't scared of no jail or prison sentence. They don't care because eventually they do get let out. And they're going to keep doing what they do no matter what. But like I said, pedophiles, they can't be stopped. And in Curtis' case, eventually, both of the girls that he had been accused of having sex with, eventually, both of them refused to testify against Curtis or push forward with the charges against Curtis. So the charges were eventually dropped and Curtis moved on with Tara, the new girl. And at least once a week, he would meet up with this 12 year old girl. He would meet up with this little 12 year old girl in the woods east of a lake in Columbia, where he would get a girl gifts of money and jewelry and clothes. And in the woods, he would also give her alcohol before having sex with her. Sometimes Tara would sneak Curtis in her own home and have sex with him there in her own house. Curtis would even meet with the girl at hotels and have sex with her there. And when you are young and young-minded, you have absolutely no idea that you are being used and that you are being manipulated and that grown-ass, a, a, a grown-ass man like this just don't give a fuck about you. Mm. This sick shit went on for like three years and Tara wasn't the only teenager that Curtis was having sex with too at the same time. Eventually Curtis got caught again and faced charges of statutory rape for having sex with two more underage girls. Tara's parents meanwhile they knew none of this was going on. Her parents didn't even know that their teenage adolescent daughter had been having sex with a grown man and when they finally found out, they shipped their now 15-year-old daughter to California to go live with other relatives for three weeks. Her parents changed their telephone number. They did all the precautions like they thought, you know, they had to do to prevent this from happening. They changed their telephone number. 
they changed their home alarm code because they knew that Curtis had been all up in their house having sex with their daughter. When Tara came back from California, her parents, they didn't even give her the new number or the new alarm code because they didn't trust her and they watched her like a hawk, never even trusting her to be alone and not letting her out of their sight. See, Tara's parents, they wasn't playing that game. They intended to press, you know, charges against Curtis and they was going to bring charges to the full extent of the law. So they pressed charges against him and now he faced new charges of statutory rape. But her, her parents, they were worried. They worried constantly because Curtis, they worried that maybe he would try to talk her out of pressing charges. They worried that maybe he would try to hurt her to prevent her from, you know, going forward and testifying against him. And they worried that, you know, he could probably do something to him. But they still, they didn't let up and they wasn't going to change their mind. And they did not let her out of their sight. And they were reluctant to letting her go anywhere without them. They slipped up on one time. On the evening of July 22nd, 1993, on the one time that they left her alone, Tara's mother came home and found out that her basement door had been like left, like partially left open. And Tara was gone. It was the first, it was the first and only time that they had left her alone since all this whole thing started. And she had managed to leave again. At first, her family thought that Tara had just ran away from home again. But when the hours passed and she didn't come back, they knew that something was wrong. And they reported her missing to the police. Everybody knew or just had that feeling that she had been with Curtis, but they couldn't prove it. And Tara was nowhere to be found. A lot of people, including some of her own family members, thought that Tara had just ran away from home. But when she didn't come back, they was just like, wait a minute. Something ain't right. And they snapped into action. So they made up flyers with her pictures on them. And they posted them all throughout the neighborhood of like Columbia. And as far as Washington, D.C. and all throughout Baltimore City. Her family handed out flyers to like cab drivers, hacks, people shopping in stores, um, people in grocery stores and shopping malls, people like, you know, in hotels, like hotel clerks, everywhere looking for her, but no luck. Tara's family, they even managed to raise $22,776 in reward money, but still no luck, no clue as to where Tara was or absolutely no sign of her. Meanwhile, Curtis had moved on with another 12-year-old girl. Tara's family never gave up looking for her, and about a month after she went missing, on August the 17th, 1993, on the day after what would have been Tara's 16th birthday, a volunteer dog search team took about 45 minutes to finally find Tara's partially decomposed nude body in a culvert or a drainage tunnel under Little Patuxent Parkway in Columbia, less than a mile from her home. And also like one of the same culvert or drainage tunnel where Tara often met Curtis for sex escapades. I mean, Tara's body was so badly decomposed that at first it was hard to even determine how she died. 
but a medical examiner later came to the conclusion that Tara had been strangled or choked until she lost her life. And he labeled her death as a homicide. Tara would have been a junior at Athelton High School and the murder of the soccer player completely devastated her family and they desperately looked for answers. Her, Tara's family just, they just knew that Curtis had something to do with their daughter's killing, but when Tara's body was found, Curtis had already been sentenced to 20 years in prison for having sex with other girls who were minors because Tara's family never gave up finding out who killed her and why. Finally, after Curtis was serving his 20-year sentence for statutory rape out at um, Roxbury Correctional Institution in Hagerstown, out in uh, Howard County, I mean, I'm sorry, out in um, <clears throat> Cumberland, Maryland, Howard County detectives questioned Curtis about his relationship with Tara. At first, Curtis told the detectives that he hardly knew her, and he was like, I don't even really know her, but after the detectives persisted, Curtis told them that he did know her, and he was like her big brother. I mean, why do these Arkellians... <laughs> that, that's the line, that's their favorite line. Like, I was like her big brother. I, 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 they use the same line. Anyway, anyway, the detectives, they kept digging, and 17 months after Tara was killed, Curtis was officially indicted and charged with the first-degree murder of Tara. They did drop the original statutory rape charges that Curtis already faced for having sex with her in the first place, and they decided to go for the more severe first-degree murder charge. Because Curtis was a pedophile, a sexual deviant, and a pathological liar, this dude decided to take his case to trial and even decided to take the stand in his own defense and testify in his own behalf. On the stand, Curtis swore that even though he had been having sex with the girl, he said that he had been home fixing his car on the day that she went missing. On the stand, he said that he had last talked to Tara on July the 16th, 1993, which was six days before she went missing. He said that Tara had called him from an airport in Houston, Texas, on her way back from being in California, and that she had made plans to call her. Um, basically, he was supposed to call her later on that day. And when he tried to call her, he had found out that the number had been changed and he never got a hold of her. But what Curtis didn't know was that the prosecutor had a surprise witness. It was that another girl who was 12 years old at the time that she met Curtis, but she was now 16. She testified on the stand that she too had a sexual relationship with Curtis at the same time that uh, he was with Tara and that he was actually her man. <laughs> and that she had knew all about Tara. She knew all about Curtis. I mean, she knew about all his, his plans to get rid of Tara because, you know, she he wanted her he didn't want to face like another set of statutory rape charges because he was able to convince most of the other ones anyway to drop their charges. Because Tara's parents had found out about their relationship, they was not trying to back down on pressing those charges. I mean, when you say it out loud to me, what difference would that have made if you already facing an earlier statutory rape charges? They could have made those consecutive for the other girls that he had sex with. Who knows? 
but one of one of his 13 year old girlfriends testified that Curtis had told her that he had planned to get rid of Tara for not dropping the charges and for about a month she knew that he had killed that he had already killed her because after he strangled her he called her and told her it's done and he had told her he said if they knew who killed Tara they would have arrested me by now I mean the girl said she didn't say anything to nobody about none of this before because she herself she didn't want to lose him as her boyfriend and this was her man when the prosecutor asked Curtis about his interaction with this this particular girl Curtis swore up and down that he wasn't seeing her anymore and that he hadn't seen or talked to her since August the 24th 1993 after he realized that she had been taping their conversations this Curtis trial was like seven days of pure bullshit and after a Howard County jury deliberated for only about 30 minutes on October the 29th 1995 they found Curtis guilty of first-degree murder and terrorist death Curtis showed very little emotion when the verdict was read but Tara's father gave a comment to the press and stated that justice was served he said it's been 28 months of hell and Tara's mother added I knew from the beginning that Curtis Jameson killed Tara this trial was for, was basically for convincing everybody else that and the state's attorney said he killed her after he couldn't persuade her to follow the other's example and drop the criminal charges against him his arrogance was so that he thought that he could talk Tara out of it he is a master of manipulation with these children and it was the most unmoving unconvincing denial of a murder that perhaps this court has ever seen at Curtis's uh, sentencing hearing on January the 19th 1995 the judge was like his testimony is clearly established that he's a manipulative pathological liar none of his testimony is credible he said all this before sentencing Curtis to life in prison without the possibility for parole Curtis later appealed his case but eventually he still ended up with the same sentence and the same conviction on what would have been Tara's 19th birthday with the money that was raised and collected to be used for Tara's reward money instead her family created the Tara Gladden Memorial Fund now let me tell you something I gotta mention this we have a lot of these type of killings in the state of Maryland but the reason why this one stood out and the reason why it made the list for you know one of uh, a notorious uh, murder in the state of Maryland is because I'm gonna be honest with you I'm gonna throw it right out there he was black all his victims all of them were white young white girls and he was just going around just a pedophile and this was out Howard County so this stood out back in the 90s if you remember this from 93 I mean I, I hate to admit it but I'm gonna go there even back then I was into true crime and I remember when this happened I was just like wow they're gonna give it to him. when they catch him oh he done because for one thing um I knew she was it's like the family you know I knew he had something to do with it 
I knew he had something to do with it. I mean, he graduated to from just, you know, having sex with little girls to homicide. Even though you were already, I mean, you were already doing 20 years. They probably would have lumped all those charges together, you know, and ran them consecutively. But I guess he was actually stupid on, on top of that, on top of being a pedophile. Huh. I mean, he was a known liar, a, a known pathological liar. And he was a repeat pedophile. I mean, I just can't stand, you know, grown men. What you? Maybe it's because you can control a teenager better than you can a woman. I mean, he's having sex with her in the woods. I mean, come on. What woman, you know, is really going to do that on a regular basis? So that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's, it's these type of men like this that prey on young on on young girls. And plus, this was this happened in Colombia. Um, for those who live in Maryland, I mean, Colombia is back at the time in the '90s was conservative. I mean, Baltimore City, yeah, that happens every day. But in Colombia at the time, they hadn't seen a lot of you know high-profile murder cases like this where uh, teenagers were killed. Um, it. Maybe uh, now a little bit, Columbia is getting out there, but back in the early 90s, no, nah, Columbia was, was not that prevalent, not that well known for a lot of crime, especially involving uh, teenagers. So that's why this crime stood out. That's why this crime was notorious in the state of Merlin. Okay, moving right into this episode's unsolved homicide. But before I do, let me just vent like I always do and say that in each season, just like before each season that we did before this one, there will always, always be an unsolved homicide. That's the focus, you know, any type of homicide, unsolved homicide that needs attention that will be discussed. It will be profiled on this podcast. Believe it or not, not every person that gets killed in this murderous state of Maryland their cases don't always make the news. They don't always get loads of attention. Their case don't always make it like on Murder Inc. or Fox 45 or WBAL or nothing like that. Sometimes not even the Baltimore Sun. Sometimes you don't hear nothing about it at all. You don't hear nothing about these homicides and there's no real media coverage or nothing. You know, it, it's, it's more like a person got killed. They was here one minute. And then they was gone the next minute. And the victim's family, they just expected to pick up the pieces where they left off, just move on with their life like nothing ever happened, and basically just hope for the best. And to make matters worse, in some of these cases, the friends or family of the victims actually know. They know. They had a feeling who killed their loved one. They actually know. But they don't have the proof or the evidence that detectives need to build a solid case or the real evidence that gets a person convicted. And they feel stuck because they still don't know what happened and why. Well, guess what? Check this out. On this podcast, we get I give attention to not only high profile, notable homicides in Maryland. But a huge focus is also on unsolved homicides that may or may not have received the attention or the notoriety that they deserve. 
or basically unsolved homicides where it seemed like nothing was done because the victim lived a certain lifestyle or whatever, or the victim did whatever in their personal life, or they sold drugs, or they was tricking or whatever. I mean, the last I checked, none of y'all who none of y'all who listen, none of y'all named God or Jesus. So you don't have a right to decide on who lives and who dies, no matter the reason. The family still deserves justice. The family still deserves answers. So with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 52-year-old Glenn Footman. <sighs> Baltimore. I'm, I'm just going to put it out there. We got issues. We got issues up the freaking wazoo. How can you be in Baltimore? Be minding your own business, walking down the street with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and become a victim of homicide in a matter of freaking seconds. That's what happened to Glenn Footman. Glenn wasn't even from Baltimore. He grew up in Brewer, Maine. Who even knows where that's at, but he grew up in Brewer, Maine. Graduated from Brewer High School in Brewer, Maine in 1975. And he went on to Purdue University in Indiana and the University of Maine, where he earned his master's in business administration and pastoral theology at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. This man worked as a licensed drug and adolescent, the drug and adolescent addiction counselor for teenagers. I mean, come on. Then in 1979, he did. He moved to Texas. He managed to have like two kids before he got a divorce. He obviously enjoyed working with people and he counseled inmates in Texas at a maximum security prison. At some point, Glenn realized that he was gay. And in 1996, he met his soulmate in Texas, San Antonio, Texas, and they began a life together. In 2006, the couple moved to Baltimore so Glenn could eventually obtain his license to start counseling people here. And on September 22nd, 2008, Glenn was out walking, holding hands with his soulmate a little after midnight in the 600 block of North Howard Street in the Mount Vernon area of central Baltimore City. A witness later told the police that he overheard a young man say, I'm going to kill myself a gay tonight right before he heard gunshots. Glenn and his partner have been walking south on Howard Street when suddenly a man riding a bicycle approached them from behind. Glenn, not being from here, stopped to talk to this dude, but his partner kept on walking. Glenn stayed talking and his partner kept going and when he looked back, it seemed like they was having some sort of argument and he yelled, come on, let's go. The next thing he heard was two gunshots. Glenn's partner ran over to Glenn, who was lying on the ground. The person who shot Glenn ran off after shooting him, but then had enough gall to realize, oh yeah, I did have a bicycle. So he came back, got his bike, and rode off towards north, up towards Howard Street somewhere. That's Baltimore for you, for real. I mean... No motive. No, I mean, the real Baltimore. No money, no robbery, 
Just some dude who felt like he was going to kill a gay dude. That's, that's the Baltimore for you. <sighs> anyway, Glenn didn't die that night though. He lingered on painfully and suffered physically and emotionally after being shot twice. And he spent time in Kernan Hospital trying to get uh, rehabilitation done. He had a bunch of surgeries. And 14 months after the shooting, he died from complications of that shooting on November the 9th, 2009 at Merlin Shock Trauma Center. According to articles for the Baltimore Sun, Glenn did die peacefully, surrounded by his friends and family. Buried in Bangor, Maine on November 20th, 2009, Glenn had managed to accomplish a lot in his lifetime and his accomplishments were all geared towards helping people. He was shot two weeks before he was to get his license to start counseling kids in Maryland. And he had already been licensed to work in Maine. He had been licensed to work in Texas and Rhode Island. According to a death notice in Maine's Bangor Daily News, it mentioned that Glenn would be remembered by all who knew him for his sense of humor, his infectious laugh, his engaging smile, and truly pure kindness. And it said um, he had touched many with his unforgettable spirit in his roles as a father, a partner, a son, a brother, an uncle, and a friend. He will be sadly missed. The article also noted that the relationship that Glenn had with his partner and soulmate, that was the sustaining, sustaining grace that held them together during their last challenging year of the physical and emotional struggle it was for Glenn after being shot. Glenn's father also commented to the Baltimore Sun that the Baltimore detectives had flat out told him that they were very upfront with him and was like, the chances of this case ever being solved is practically nil. Wow. I mean, and to tell you the truth, with that outlook, it probably is. They do say that Glenn's murder is possibly a hate crime. And that's all they got. They literally have nothing else. I mean, I can't even... <laughs> wow. To live in all those other states, come here and get killed. Wow. Yeah, that's... Like I said, that's, that's Baltimore. They wonder why nobody don't want to live here. So, y'all know what's next. Y'all already know the drill. Y'all already know what I'm about to say. If you know of or have any information that can lead to an arrest or conviction in this unsolved homicide, please call Homicide Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also call them at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can send them a text message at 443-902-4824. You can email them at homicidetips at baltimorepolice.org. Once again, those numbers are, you can call Homicide Cold Case Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also call them at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also send them a text message at 443-902-4824. You can also email them at homicidetips, and that's tips with an S, at baltimorepolice.org. You can remain anonymous, people. 
Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine tingling, eye popping, hair raising, high profile episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the unedited truth of how and why I do what I do, why I started a true crime podcast. I mean, a lot of people think I just woke up one day and boom, there's a podcast. That's a nice way to start, but that is not hardly true. There is a full-blown method to all of this madness, and there was definitely, you know, this is definitely like most spur-of-the-moment type of gimmick thing or whatever. You know, this definitely was uh, a work in progress. Also, be sure to pay a visit to the new website, www.mdsmostnotoriousmurders.com. Basically, MarylandsMostNotoriousMurders.com with Merlin spelled MDS. Um, you can visit that website to get immediate access to all of the episodes that have been released to date. I mean, you can check out the old episodes I did for child, um, season one, which was like child killers. I mean, episodes are a little raw and I can actually see the growth in the podcast with the way I speak and how I engage with, you know, my readers and stuff like that now compared to how open I am now. Um, but either way, you can check out um, uh, previous episodes um, from season one, season two, all the way up to uh, the season that we're in now, which is season five. Um, you can also check out the website to get links to all of the books that are related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990 through 2008, uh, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1. And my local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. Be sure to tune in next week, where we'll have the season finale of season five. This will be the last episode of this part one series of sick, twisted, you know, sexual-related type homicides. It will be another high-profile Another bizarre homicide occurring in Maryland that will be examined and profiled on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a Savage Life production. <laughs>